0: And welcome to episode 55 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel.
1: I'm Eloise Ross.
0: And I'm Anders Furs. And in this episode, we'll be reviewing I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story, and sharing an interview with its director, Jessica Leski. opening up the Cultural Capital film diary, and discussing the new Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind. But first, a film that's opening November 22nd around the country, Steve McQueen's Widows. Something happened today, something bad husbands aren't coming back. We're well, on our own. They would a lot of money. And now people want it from us. Now the best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why?
1: Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. Widows is a heist film led by a cast of women including Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez and Elizabeth Debicki. With a dark neo-noir fleck and what looks like a satisfying dose of melodrama, Widows has promised to be a strong addition to the swathe of portraits of criminal life in Chicago. McQueen co-wrote the screenplay with Gone Girl author Gillian Flynn and boasts a cool song by Sade. It's got a lot going for it. What do you think, you guys?
2: Uh, Well, I thought it was a really intelligent crime thriller. Not without its faults, um, but it all comes together in the end. Look, uh, it began... um, I I felt like there was just some pretension in the filmmaking to begin with, some sort of indulgent... um, McQueen sort of goes on these sort of visual flights of fancy that I felt a bit arbitrary to proceedings. I'm thinking of one particular sequence where... So Colin Farrell plays this. Uh, he's a Democrat, isn't he? He's a union mm, union. It's n- yeah, yeah, nobody
0: specified politician. Is, yeah, you would assume he's, an, he's, he's a Democrat. He's an alderman. He wants to become to run the ward, this particular ward in Chicago that his father has run for a long, long time. Yeah, so it's like a legacy political opportunist in a way.
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I mean, I, I, you would assume he's a Democrat anyway. He's a he's a big unionist anyway. <laughs> he gets into a car, into his car with his assistant and has this sort of five-minute-long conversation and the f- camera is entirely outside of the car, so we don't see them talking at all. And I just found that a bit, like, pointless. I loved so, it. I thought it was the entire point. That also. sounds really
1: cool. No, I
2: wasn't. A, no, uh, no. <coughs> Be more conventional. No. Uh, no, 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 I don't want to yell that at Steve McQueen. Um, but I did... But then there were some um, um, moments that really struck me as amazing, particularly the opening shot of uh, Liam Neeson and Viola Davis sort of making out in this very crisp white bed. Yeah, with no makeup. With no makeup. It was. Um, it was. Quite a stunning. I would, I, it's opening. a long time since I've seen middle-aged
0: people make out without makeup in a major film. <laughs> exactly. When you said
1: Liam Neeson and Viola Davis making out, I'm like, <laughs> do middle-aged people make out anymore? Well, do Is they making out it's just like what teenagers do? Like, anyway, okay, mac on. on. <laughs> uh, they did not mac on. They did,
2: and it was really cool. And um, you know, and she's talked a lot about how it shouldn't be shocking, like the yes, interracialness of that. Yes, I've heard that as well, is something that's really interesting. Yeah, And race sort of plays an interesting role in this film. Yeah, so... Yeah.
0: Well, just, just to dial back a little bit, so the plot of the story is that there's the there's this heist that goes wrong in the beginning of the film. Mm. It ends in this fiery carnage, and then the, the, the widows of the men involved in the heist are asked to recover $2 million. The, these guys owed to this bad guy who's the... Uh, he's like an assistant to the other person trying to become the alderman. So there's the, right. there's a political race going on yeah. that's expensive, and there's a lot of lot at stake. And uh, Daniel Kaluuya plays this guy who's going to collect the debts, and he's got this amazing his face. I just can't get enough of. It's like so menacing and so kind of yeah. like approachable. And he's
2: he sort of plays this sort of sociopathic uh, gang member who you know doesn't think twice about stabbing people repeatedly, <coughs> which we all get to see. Yeah. Um. So that violence it's a bit confronting. It really. comes out of nowhere. Yeah, it's in yeah, a yeah, almost, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of refreshing in a way after being so
0: new to it.
1: I haven't seen this, but it feels like it's a w- kind of an outlier, maybe, or maybe I'm being too superficial, in Steve McQueen's, mm. like, career, right? Because Hunger is obviously, like, extremely pared back, very... Very intense, but very pared back. Shame has its moments, kind of a flair, a little bit of melodrama as well. Um, And it is very, I mean, they're all very violent films. And, you know, 12 Years a Slave does its thing as well. So is it a strange film coming from him, do you think? Or does it fit in his kind of Yeah,
0: Very good question. In a way, both yes and no. Like yeah. I think the subject matter to be adapted. First of all, he's adapting a UK TV series from 1982, right. um, Made by oh. Linda Lepina, Lepina. Lepine. Thank you, Listen. Linda Laplant, Yeah. <laughs> uh, she, and so she directed this apparently seminal TV series. About, yeah. And so he decided to adapt that. So that's first of all, that's unusual. Plus Gillian Flynn or Gillian Flynn, sorry, doing ad- an adaptation, not mm. you know, adapting her own work, is another yeah. first as well. Yeah. But so you could do occasionally get these little flourishes, like Anna's was t- saying about that single shot. It takes you from poverty to opulence within a few minutes of a yeah. car ride.
2: Um, yeah, well, that broader point I thought was very well done. And that sort of, that economic inequality yeah. is really interesting and as, as a subject for the film. Quite.
0: Yeah, that's what I really thought the film was actually about. It's, there's barely any heist in this heist film at all. And it's great because there's so much drama in conversations. Like if you think of the best things, I think, from Steve McQueen films, they are conversations. They're like the single take in yeah. Hunger the twelve, go the twelve minute take, or the conversation between Paul Dano and Chi- Chiwetel Ejiofor around that campfire when they're singing that horrible, like n- nasty, like racist song. And yeah. he, there's all this tension in in interactions, and there's a lot of that in this. And Viola Davis is brilliant. I think she's, she is. She's and, just the whole carries the film on her shoulders, really.
2: And well, yeah, she does. But also, I thought it was strong. Uh, they were all strong performances. It's just really smart. Like it's a smart movie. It's... I liked how they were all grey characters. No one yeah. here is morally good. Well,
0: yeah. I mean, Gillian Flynn did say in her interview, she's like, I went out of my way to not make any of them likable, and I was like, Oh, Elle's gonna love this because she <laughs> hates this pressure for <laughs> my characters to be likable when men don't have to be like, yeah. It's true. Lots of, you're not the only one who feels that way. I can tell you. So there are parts of it where you're like, Okay, this does feel like a Stephen McQueen film, but also I'm like, I had no idea how he would film a car chase or a gunfight or something like that. Like, this all feels like cunning kind of new territory. Yeah. And so in this, like, in this heist in the very beginning of the film, which we're getting intercut. Between between these scenes of intimacy with this heist going wrong, he shoots the entire, this entire huge thing from inside the back of a van. So you're like along with these guys. Mm. You're watching everything from this, this, the back of this van with these doors blown out and this gunfight happening. It's like kind of, you're kind of thrown straight into, the, in, into this. So it's kind of really daring, really bold way to open a film, just like cutting between these different... Mm. Women and then backed their husbands in this mm. botched heist. Cool. So yeah, it's a lot of really great editing. Actually, that was the number one thing. Joe yep. Walker's editing was, inc- I thought, was incredible. He's done a lot of stuff with Denis Villeneuve, and he's done the, oh, o- the right. other films of um, Steve McQueen's as well. So yeah, he did that that scene in Sicario at the border, which I thought was a, one of the best bits of oh, editing yeah, I've seen in a long time. That's
2: yeah. Um, and a shout out to hometown hero Elizabeth Biki, yeah. who is uh, very good. I thought in is. Yeah, I really – I liked it a lot.
1: All right, here's a question for you. What's the better heist movie, Steve McQueen's Widows or – Steve McQueen's The Thomas Crown Affair.
0: Oh, that's a brilliant question. That's a, It's really tough. they both got visual flair. They do.
1: They, do. they, they sure do. do. Right. And Bye. they've both got iconic theme songs. <laughs> <laughs> <guess> that's true <laughs> as well.
0: <laughs> I love what you did there. Um, I, I have to go Thomas Crown Affair, I guess, because Windmills of Your Mind yeah. <laughs> is a pretty untoppable song. <clears throat> yeah, you don't want yeah, you right. to. Sorry, know. Sade. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that's been decided, but. But we should all go and see Widows as well. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, but I I do kind of agree with uh, with some of what you're saying. I think this the film is very much feels like a TV series worth of plot put into one film. Like there's a lot of people explaining the plot and how Mm. things are being moved along, and that's Mm. one of the downsides to it, I think. Because there's a bunch I still don't understand. Like, yeah, I can't quite work out why you have five million dollars in cash sitting around when you're running a political campaign, or why there's all these questions I have about the plot that because you're in
1: the mob, right?
0: Mm, but I still feel like if you're trying to get elected and you've got all this money sitting around, you'd probably want to chuck some on some TV ads or something like that. But there's, I know there's, there's quite a few things, I think. But I th-
1: then you'd have to, like, say where you got it. I don't know.
0: Yeah, possibly. Well, there were things like that that I didn't think were explained, but right. at the same time, there was a lot of... The women getting this notebook from Liam Neeson, you know, which is describing what their ne- his next heist was going to be, and they mm. have to carry it out, and they're not sure what they're looking at or how to go about it because they- this is a totally new thing for them.
2: Mm. Remember that bizarre scene where Michelle Rodriguez's uh, character, she's great in this. Too, oh yeah, I'm Michelle like, Rodriguez. Oh, I love it. Right. Yeah. Um, when she goes into that architect's office. Yeah. yeah Home.
0: There's a, yeah, there's a quite a few little. Yeah, little there's tonal sort of little. Uh,
2: <laughs> and that was sort of like a self-contained. Thing that really had no bearing on the well, plot. emotionally,
0: I think it did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, women are in grief as well as having to get their shit together. Yes, or they're yes, yes, yes. You're you're right. You're right. But yeah, you know, you're to- right. Tonally, it did, did kind of sit out.
2: And there were <laughs> moments of humor, and then which I found quite funny, um, mm, yeah, as well. So yeah, it's totally it's a bit odd, but yeah, I, it's. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah good Colin filming. Farrell
0: as well Fantastic
2: Oh, really, fantastic, yeah. yeah Held his yeah, yeah. own
0: against Robert Duval In some key scenes And he was in mm. this
2: quite uh, prominently I wasn't expecting so much of Colin Farrell But um, yeah, he's he's a good actor
0: He is good <laughs> I'm, I would yeah. love to see him get a Oscar nomination for something anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's a dark horse He makes mm. some very interesting choices
2: Yeah, so yeah, recommend it Recommend it
0: Which brings us to this month's Cultural Capital Film Diary. The Cine Latino Film Festival runs until November 28 at Palace Cinemas throughout Melbourne. Highlights include the probable winner of the 2019 Oscar for Best Film, there I said it, Alfonso Cuaron's sprawling Netflix movie Roma, Netflix Presenter. I never thought I'd see that at the beginning. Netflix Presenter! Yeah, it's great. (laughs) Um, Which may get a more in-depth discussion in our next episode. Birds of Passage, the new film from Chira Guerra and Cristina Gallego, the directors of Cultural Capital's favourite film of 2016, Embrace of the Serpent, and The Heiresses, an acclaimed Paraguayan drama about shifting fortunes among the wealthy women in Asunción. Find out more at cinelatinofilmfestival.com.au. The Moonlight Cinema season starts on November 29 with Mission Impossible Fallout, and it runs until March 31st. Highlights include Ladies in Black on December 2nd and January 8th, Love Actually on December 18th, and an advanced screening of Yorgos Lanthimos' Oscar contender The Favourite on December 21st. Great. Great. Yeah, can't wait for that. Um, The Dead End Film Festival explores resourceful filmmaking and alternative methods of using screens, blending cinema, theatre and music from 7pm until midnight on November 30 at the Coburg Drive-In. Visit (laughs) def.com. D-E-F-F-T-V for more details. Over at the Astor, you can catch a double bill of First Man and Apollo 13 on December 1st, and if you've ever wanted to watch a Mission Impossible marathon, you're in luck because all six films play back-to-back over 14 hours from 11am on December 2nd. Finally, at Acme, the documentary Ian McKellen Playing the Part, about the life and work of actor Ian McKellen, screens from November 23 until December 4th. And the Sundance Audience Award winner I Dream in Another Language, about the efforts of a linguist to save a dying language, screens on December 4th. Double thumbs up from Elo for that one. hello is there anything happening over at Cinematheque?
1: Mm-hmm. We've got a couple of seasons left to go <laughs> for the year, uh, profiling the work of Emil Corton wilson Oh, yes, right. Oh, cool. The local Australian filmmaker. Friend of the podcast? <clears throat> yeah, kind of, well, <throat> kind of friend of the podcast. We reviewed his ruin um, yeah, a couple of years ago. Which we liked. Um, and then coming up, final season of the year is a season profiling the work of um, Dushan Makovayev, the... Um, Yugoslavian filmmaker, um, shall I say. You know, he a lot of his work c- comes from Yugoslavia during that period of time, that particular period of history, including one of my favourite films. And I know Andy loves it very much too. Love Affair or The Case of the Missing... The Case Probably of the good. Missing... You, t-
0: telephone Operator.
1: Telephone Operator. Yeah, it was really good. I, c- I always wanted to call it The Strange Case of... Um, something because of the strange case of Martha lover Ivers. of Martha Ivers yes. and then there were just too many words that existed in that like film's potential titles
0: for me to get it does feel like, like an odd right. translation <laughs> just to be
2: pedantic switchboard operator switchboard oh, of course. Thank
0: you, thank you for your pedantry Anders, I, I, I never thought I'd say that
2: <laughs> I knew um, the
1: telephone wasn't right. Anyway good
0: Yes,
2: thank you. On the same uh, wavelength, just very briefly, I want to say it's great that we have all these opportunities to watch Mission Impossible Fallout on yes. the big screen in Melbourne because that's yeah. a wonderful film. It I is, still haven't great. seen
1: it, but I maybe I'll go to the first Mission Impossible and then I'll go home and sleep, a nap, yeah, come and, then, and go then go back for number five. Yeah,
0: you'll still know just as much about Tom Cruise's character because he's in zero. And Bay they are, and they are
2: the two best films in my opinion. Really? Series, okay. So, uh, yeah. Oh, come no, Ghost Protocol.
1: Yeah, Alright, maybe good. I'll get up for Ghost Protocol as well
0: Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would recommend the last couple
1: <laughs> Alright, good Good stuff everyone Yes It's not phase And I just haven't quite understood why The Baxter Boys to me are about unconditional love And they're never going to break my heart I feel like I have more connection to life Because of One Direction This is a time in your life where you really need to scream and yell and cry and all of those things. It's a release and we have so much energy that we hold on to. Get rid of it, have the ball and you feel so good.
0: I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story, is a documentary made by Australian filmmaker Jessica Lesky. A sellout success at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival, it explores the world of female fandom through the lives of four women. Elif, a teenager whose reaction video to watching One Direction became a YouTube sensation in 2012, which you heard a little of at the end of that trailer. Dara, a woman in her 30s who has spent much of her life obsessed with the band Take That. Sadia, who pioneered online fandom with a daily newsletter about the band Backstreet Boys in the early 2000s and Susan, a 64-year-old Beatles fan from Melbourne. Lesky entwines these stories to look at the transformative and malleable power of female love of boy bands. I had the chance to chat with Jessica about the making of the film, and in particular why it was that this subject kicked off a five-year mission to make a film.
3: The beginning was, it happened to me. I had never liked a boy band before, and suddenly I loved a boy band, and One didn't have anyone to talk to about it with because I was not the demographic but two it really surprised me what um, the other fans were like because I had you know like most people on the outside have this idea of what a boy band fan was Um, so that's all I thought I would discover but instead um, I found just fans online being so hilarious um, and so creative Um, I'd never seen fan art before. Mm -hmm. I'd never read fan fiction. Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. So I realised there was a world that people wouldn't have seen before. But then also just thinking about fandom, that fans in general don't get represented very well in films. Um, It's usually about, let's find, the weirdest and the craziest and, you know, the most extreme, which is usually only a very small percentage of a fandom. So, yeah, I just didn't feel like there was anything that was respectful about mm. fans out there.
0: Okay, and so how did you find these four women, girl, one girl and three women, I suppose, to be the subjects?
3: So um, the two Australian ones were kind of gifted to us in a way by um, mutual friends because we'd been making talking about the film, and I'd been talking about One Direction and Boy Bands for a while on my all my social media. Um, so when someone heard I was making the film, they said they had the like perfect Beatles fan Mm. for me to meet. So we had a mutual friend. And similarly with Rita, the producer, she had a friend who said, I happen to know like an international boy band consultant. So you should meet with her. Yeah, well, that's Dara, who's in the film. Um, So we, the first time we had a Skype with her was just about tell us about, you know, what it's like being an international boy band consultant. But then she started talking about Take That and how much she loved Take That. And I quickly realised she would be you know Mm. a good subject and that she had a lot more to tell us right um so and then the american one so a leaf who's the one direction fan um because i you know as i say i didn't really have people to talk to about one direction it was a lot of being online and watching reaction videos which are hilarious reaction videos in general when you find good ones are are very entertaining but they're usually even the good ones are kind of self-conscious because the person has set up the camera but a leaf's Um, one direction reaction video her friends had set up the camera secretly so she didn't know that she was being filmed Um, and it goes for like eight minutes and they've kind of hidden it behind the tv and she just goes through this range of emotions that are so um, raw i guess it's amazing to watch it's like this exorcism kind of religious experience there's joy and there's pain and there's everything yeah. from just watching this concert mm. video so yeah i reached out to her because i was just like this is incredible it was like an art piece yeah really yeah. to me and kind of similarly sadia i found online also she's the backstreet boys fan she had written an article about I'm going on her first Backstreet Boys cruise. Yes. And, yeah, one, I'd never heard about the cruises. Um, and two, she wrote about it in a way that I could tell she was already struggling with, you know, if this was a good thing or a really wrong thing mm. and what role her fandom played for her. You need to be a big fan to go on those cruises, but, but to still be questioning um, what it is that's driving you to have those experiences. So, yeah, I could just tell she would be really – she would be an expert in a way on – on the pros and cons of being a fan.
0: Yes, because that's one of the things that really blew me away about the film was just their ability to be able to simultaneously feel these huge range of feelings and still be able to analyze <laughs> it. Was that was there a lot of people who you wanted to put in that you couldn't, or you other people that you kind of interviewed and didn't have really have time to, to fit in? I
3: think the earlier version of the film, because we've been working on it for quite a few years, was um, I guess me trying to understand for myself why why this band had had this effect on me. And, you know, also led to me wanting to know about other boy bands and because I had dismissed the whole thing, you know, through my teenage years. So I think in the beginning, I wanted to understand the phenomena. I wanted to understand, like, what's the trick to writing a perfect pop song and what happens in your brain when you hear a combination of chords, all those things. I think that was me trying to justify my love for this thing that's deemed so simplistic. Yeah. So, you know, I loved speaking to all those people, but as I was, I was doing that concurrently with spending time with these girls and women, and I realized they were smart enough. Mm. Um, they were analyzing, like you say, themselves and the boy band thing. Um, so I didn't need the experts. And I also, I guess, came to a place in myself where I realized I didn't need to justify it as a thing that I loved. People would say to me, you, you must love this thing ironically, and, you know, they yeah. didn't understand that I could actually love it. So, yeah, part of in the film, it was just realizing I don't need the expert voices. I don't need to justify this thing. I, I want to give these women a place to just talk about what they love and what it means to them because um, you don't get to see that very often. Yeah.
0: So there are two things that really struck me as being absent. Like, number one is you, because it's felt like when I read your interviews, other interviews, I was like, oh, this is part of a personal journey. But then you're barely in it at all. Like you occasionally, your voice will occasionally appear from behind the camera. And secondly, the bands themselves are almost, like just almost meaningless to this, this story. Was that a conscious decision?
3: Yeah, we had... Rita um, often s- describes the film as being not 20 feet from stardom, it's 20,000 feet yeah. from stardom. <laughs> um, because, yeah, the idea that... I kind of think part of the magic of being a fan is what you project onto them. And, yeah, early on we talked about, wouldn't it be interesting or fun to meet Backstreet Boys or, you know, have one of them meet their favourite members... But a lot of them have already met their their favorite members of the band, and if anything, I feel like it's kind of an anticlimax. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, your idols are usually better in your imagination. So um, I kind of like the distance between um, the girls and the and the bands. Um, and we also realized that the the kind of access that we would be able to get um, from a band would be pretty limited. Um, very early on we did we were lucky enough to interview a couple of the guys from five um, which was fun and um, they were really funny but yeah there's only so much they can tell you about um, their fans because they're reliant on the fans for their for their income so to actually be honest with you about what that relationship is like um, yeah you're not gonna get that from just a quick Mm. sit down and I also felt like it would take away from how important you know, you can have a whole fantasy relationship and, and your celebrity crush can help you through so many things. So meeting them doesn't change that or mm. or help that in any way.
0: So was it difficult to buy some of the footage? Because it must have been a huge troll to be able to come up with as much different archival <laughs> yes, stuff as you Yes,
3: got. definitely. Once um, I convinced Rita that this was a film worth making, the next person we sat down with was a lawyer, a copyright lawyer, because we knew that would be a lot of challenges with this so yeah we wanted to say to him is this even worth attempting knowing that our budget would be so small but that we'd be dealing with you know the content of really like the three biggest pop bands in the world yeah. really like Beatles, yeah. Backstreet Boys and One Direction so he gave us the go-ahead which was good um, and we were checking things along the way with him constantly and had to be creative about it as well. <laughs> Is this who I want to be? Does this align with my values and ideal self? There's nothing about like obsessing over a boy band in that criteria. So there are times when I feel that like it's an immature part of me, I feel like I'm not letting go of the past in some way. We often talked about like imagine if, you know, what if MTV came on board and said you can use everything in our catalog, would that help the film? Or, you know, is it more fun to try and Piece it together in more of a scrapbook way because I really love the idea of it it having this timeless kind of schoolgirl scrapbook you know locker things stuck up in your wall and and just the way that girls or fans of anything collect things and now that's you know iPhone footage or it's taking Polaroids or it's um, all these things so yeah we had fun making animations mm. to put in the film and collecting footage from fans and yeah just coming up with creative ways to. Um, include that material, and there is there is some licensed stuff in there, but it's used quite sparingly because yes. our budget yeah. was pretty small.
0: Were the the girls really easy to? Was it easy to get their trust? Were they kind of on board straight away?
3: Um, I think they could see that I was a fan as well, so I think they they realised they weren't being judged. Um, so I think that helped them relax. And the first interviews that I did with them were not superficial, but were more simple or were more kind of getting to know you interviews. And then, you know, as the years go on, you know, they could see how committed I was and, you, you know, they welcome you into their lives and kind of that, that trust starts to build even more as the time goes on. Um, And it was confusing for me because I felt very close to them because I was working on the project constantly for years, looking at the footage, writing funding applications about them. But for them, they would only see me, you know, once a year or, you know, twice a year, um... But they would still be like, oh, especially Sadia would be like, oh, great, you're here for our like yearly therapy session. and um, <laughs> Just there was this real, like, oh, good, there's someone here that will talk to me about this thing that I love. Because for them as well, they didn't really have... I mean, the Beatles you can talk about mm-hmm. more openly. But um, for the others, I think they liked having an outlet to think to about this yeah. thing.
0: So when you're like interviewing somebody like Dara and they're talking about the take that ticket fiasco, um, <laughs> is there a point where dara will be telling the story and you'll be like oh that's perfect for the third act i'll just save it for that <laughs> or is this something that comes out months later
3: yeah, yeah i i think if you if when you're interviewing if you start doing that the people can tell because your eyes right. you're i don't know i that's happened to me a few times where you start if you start thinking about something else you lose mm. lose your spot um and kind of the magic of having a digital recording device is you can record so much um and then go back and listen to it and then make those connections yeah um, yeah. I think if I wanted to... Maybe by the third interview I had a bit more of an idea of the structure so I knew a bit more about the things that we needed to talk about. But for the first couple of years it was just about, you know, let's talk and get to know each other and, and check in where you're at with this band and with your life.
0: Mm, okay. Um. Was there, was there anything that you were kind of hoping would happen, like that? take that would reunite again or there would be some sort of way that this, um, you could actually properly... Good
3: question. <laughs> like yeah, what would have been like the best finale of the yeah, film.
0: Yeah, because I'm interested in the way that people, like in particularly this documentary, like where you get to the point where you go, this is it. That's yeah, yeah, well, that's this. the
3: problem. You can't, with real people and real people that you find interesting, you can be tempted to film their lives forever. When um, One Direction broke up, lots of people were saying to me, oh, this you have to put this in your film. This is so important. And, or how are you even going to make the film now that One Direction have broken up? And so, yeah, realising that Boy bands are so cyclical that it doesn't matter who breaks up when or who gets back together as long as there's kind of a reference that mm. that every boy band is probably going to go through um, something like that. So so in the edit, realizing it didn't need to have a particular date stamp on it. It kind of does a little bit with One Direction, but um, we keep that a little bit vague mm. because, yeah, I wanted to feel kind of timeless yeah. because, yeah. yeah, take that, a reforming I'm sure One Direction will do a cruise in, like, 15 years. It's like, yeah, you don't need, it doesn't need to be this happened on this date and, and therefore, you know, this was the follow-on effect. Yeah, okay. Well,
0: thank you very much. <laughs> okay, thank you. And that was my chat with Jessica Lesky about her film I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story. And there's what did you make of I Used to Be Normal?
2: Uh, well, I quite like this film. Um, I thought its success really was down to the interviewees, the talent that um, she wrangled, and I mean they're all interesting stories. And what look, what the one thing that I found most interesting about the film is how they all seem to be getting to grips with their fandom and trying to work out what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, So I initially took the title, you know, I Used to Be Normal, which is screamed by this One Direction fan after she sort of has this sort of really emotional moment. I initially read that uh, statement and the title of the film as an endearingly sort of self-aware moment of, you know, she's aware that what she's doing is absurd and a bit ridiculous. Um, And she's like, I used to be, like, normal. What's happening? What's going on? But then the movie goes on and it sort of struck me that actually that self-awareness straddles a fine line into sort of a shame about what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, that was a really interesting development. Something that we condition girls to grow out of, uh, you know, that it's all silly and pointless. And particularly Dara, this woman who's obsessed with Take That, she sort of is very open about the fact that she's often spent a lot of time pondering why... And, you know, she's come to embrace her boy band love um, mm. and sort of, you know, she almost half jokingly but half seriously says she's come out as like a boy band fan. That was sort of told, I thought, in that sort of nice moment where her mother buys her for her what, oh, 27th God, yeah. birthday yeah, yeah. these front row tickets I to take that reunion because when, when Dara was a teenager, her mother didn't buy the tickets and this was like a sticking point in their relationship. So that I found quite interesting.
0: Yeah, that was one of my favourite things was the, that, that idea of shame and rejoicing, of ice, being forced into isolation because of the love you feel for this band. But at the same time you're making these new friends who are other obsessives about these particular bands. Like, I think all of these women at some point are inspired to make their own art out of
1: I am really liked the four women so Elif is 18 at the end of the film so she is a woman although it traces her teenage years which I think is quite interesting because I mean all of the the other three women as well refer back to their teenage years because teenagehood is such a formative place where people develop these boy band you know obsessions so I really liked all four of them and their stories were very interesting and I liked their personal reflection and how they were kind of – they were quite different. Like at the end, what's the Backstreet Boys lady's Sadia? name? S- Sadia. Sadia, yeah. She at the end says that she's, you know, grown out of her boy band fandom whereas Dara has not very much. Mm. And so we can – and also Elif has as well. Um, yeah, Susan has kind of incorporated, has, I suppose, into yeah, 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 but I think that that's also interesting as well because there are a lot of people who – speak very openly, you know, of Susan's age, who speak very openly about b- being in Beatlemania because Beatlemania was kind of like, I mean, obviously it was also um, criticised, but it was kind of this culturally accepted phenomenon, you know. Yeah, It, it was kind of was dubbed Beatlemania. Yeah, so if you like had Beatlemania, that was okay and you could talk yeah. about it openly. You didn't have to hide. Whereas if you love the Backstreet Boys, exactly. you maybe do. Yeah, And
2: it's it is like, interesting that we do sort of hold up the Beatles as like, mm-hmm. You know, master musicians in a way that we don't about say one. Yeah, but also
0: those girls are all just screaming girls. Like then there's nothing to them more in a cultural way. Well, no, that's
1: what I mean. But but in the conversation, I think that it's not that that their kind of their behaviour is accepted more than we because it maybe because it was in the past and it happened before a lot of this boy Mm. other boy band fandom kind of became a thing. And Mm. so Susan's position, I think, is quite different. And I thought that all of that stuff was really interesting and maybe the point of the movie is that we can then have a discussion about the four women and how they're all different. But in the context of the film itself, I feel like it wasn't scrutinising this idea of fandom and that it's essentially I kind of thought well, what's, why is this a documentary? What's the subject here? Other than the four women, what is the overall subject? There's some kind of a funny, I guess, gag about boy band theory which I thought was a little wrong, by the way. I mean, Brian is not the cute backstreet boy. Mm. (laughs) But besides that, like, when they got to that theory conversation, there was, like, brothers cannot be a boy band. Yeah, it's on the block. And and why why can't brothers be a boy band? Like, what is the cultural construct that you see of brothers being in a band together? Why are the Jackson 5 not a boy band? Like, what... What is going on there? I wanted to see more of that, more of an intellectualising or, like, theorising of this boy band phenomenon. Um, Towards the end of the film, there are kind of suggestions of that. I mean, there's that bit where Howie from the Backstreet Boys reunion, he says, being a fan is really hard work. It takes a lot of time. Um, and he's saying it to, you know, all of these, these yeah, fans. Yeah, yeah. And, the, the and, out, I, and I loved cream. that bit. I mean, that was great. And that um. sort of said, meant that he was acknowledging that these people who were their fans were, this was a worthy yeah. activity being a fan. Or It's not just something to be, you know, sneezed at. But I wanted more of that kind of acknowledgement or I guess kind of scrutinising of the activity from the very beginning And I don't know how that would have happened, like whether Jessica should have intervened a little bit more and it became, you know, not so much just an assemblage of their conversations or something.
0: Mm. Um, Well, I think that was the original intention. If you go back and look at the Kickstarter video for this, there are experts talking about the boy band phenomena and and theorising that, making it much more an academic film. But as the movie started coming together, I think it became a much more personal story about these four... ...women, mm. who I thought were brilliant subjects. I mean, I've got to, yeah, I think we all agree... ...that they were, like, yeah. really great subjects yeah. for this film. Like, they have this fantastic ability to look at themselves... ...in this detached way and... ...as yeah. well as, you know, integrate it into their personalities... ...in a really interesting way. I mean, that was the, what I felt the point was... ...was to, like, reassess what we thought we knew about fandom... ...because the public I image... I don't
1: think it says anything about fandom, though. Well, I think... I mean, the, I think there's nothing there about fandom... Mm-mm. ...at all, beyond, f- you know, mm. kind of... I mean, at the very beginning... It's like, what's the point of this? Because everyone went through that phase. Um, every teenage girl, at least. I don't know what you
2: guys did. I had Hanson on my t-shirt, yeah.
1: Um, I found it very interesting as well that Sadia was Backstreet Boys only. She's like, I'm not a boy band yeah. fan. I'm Backstreet mm. Boys. Whereas Dara was like boy bands forever. Like, I thought that was a very interesting thing as well. And kind of talking about that could have been like super, super interesting. Because I was not... You know a one band kind of fan That it was just I was into everything Mm -hmm. Um, Everything that was in you know The teen magazines I was into And so that kind of thing would have been really Interesting to kind of look into I think I just found it a little bit Empty at the end there's a line I can't remember which of the women Says it but how can Fangirling be insignificant If everyone does it And It just it doesn't kind of Fulfill that Line, I think, is asking that question, but it doesn't fulfill it for me. It was really, yeah, I don't know. It was, just, it was nice to watch, but I kind of just thought, well, you know, what, what, what is what is coming from this? Mm.
0: Well, for me at least, I loved it because I would, had not heard of these stories before. I would not seen this experience. I'd seen a lot of fandom. I had loads of magazines I think it was on the block and all that sort of stuff growing yep. up. But I'd never been a massive fan like these people had. But I would see them, and I was familiar with this—you know, the girls, you know, obsessing over Zane and all this sort of stuff. And to actually have a microphone and pointed at them and then them breaking it down—it became this multi-dimensional thing, at least for me, where I was like, it's really fun, it's really sad, it's really obsessive, it's really like it's having all these cultural impacts on you, you and your family. There's all this sort of stuff, and you know, it's almost like this weird addiction. And so to see somebody be able to move that and have four different versions of this, Mm. and then get four different takes on them, and all you know people who are able to do that sort of analysis, I thought that gave me much more of an insight into fandom than I had before I watched the film. Okay, Mm -hmm. because there aren't that many. I mean, just watching that video alone of a leaf that her watching that video and her having with the pizza that she thinks is being delivered by. That's like that 10-minute journey of emotion is like one of the rawest things I've ever seen in my life just because it's so naked. It's just so –
1: And I love where she's reflecting on that later and she says, I don't know what was wrong with me. There was something that would happen – where if you even said One Direction at me, I would scream and like you know shiver kind of thing. Yeah, that it was just beyond her yeah, control the, at that. Yeah, point. and
0: even now, like even though they've heard those songs thousands of times, you know Sadia was there listening to that Backstreet Boys song and having these f- involuntary physical reactions to it. And I'm like, you must know this song like so hmm. well. How how does how is it possible that it has this this physiological reaction? I find that sort of stuff. Amazing.
2: It, was, it was sort of interesting to see. It's one thing to read about One Direction hysteria, but then to see this concert where it's just deafening screaming. Like, you can barely hear the band on stage. It's just screaming, screaming, screaming. And also, what I found interesting was that that final, when um, that Backstreet Boys guy is talking about, you know, the hard work and how hard it is to be a fan, that kind Mm. of stuff that was on this cruise oh my God, and I'm oh like the footage of like them in going swimming and it's oh yeah, like a pack of sharks following the like backstreet boy guy. This is like running in the water and all these women are like chasing him in the water. That was amazing. Yeah, I never,
0: I had no idea that existed.
2: <laughs> so yeah, I yeah. Don't know, I think I sit halfway between you both. No right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah.
0: Cool. Well, um, that's out this week um, in limited release.
2: Jay can't afford the Ernest Hemingway of the cinema. Mr. I
0: just want to know what he represents. The man is infested
1: with disciples. I'm the apostle, just like me and God. How could you
2: tell us apart? Patrick's
1: oh, yes. new movie? The Other Side of the
2: Wind.
3: What's that about the movie? We I mean... don't
2: talk about the movie. So, you guys are
3: trying to get with it. Is that what this movie's about?
2: Well, we don't actually know.
0: What do we know? Jake is just making it up as he goes along. He's done it before.
2: 2018 is a banner year for decades in the making movies from old and or dead male auteurs. We've already been treated to Terry Gilliam's appropriately chaotic project The Man Who Killed Don Quixote and now comes Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind. Recently released onto Netflix, almost 50 years after he started shooting the movie and over 30 years since he died, that The Other Side of the Wind exists for an audience is thanks to a motley crew of Welles collaborators, including Peter Bogdanovich, the producers Frank Marshall and Philip Jan Rimshaw, And, crucially, to my mind at least, the editor Bob Mirowski. So, to the movie itself, or movies even, The Other Side of the Wind follows essentially a night in the life of celebrated director Jake Hannaford, played by John Huston. He's somewhat in the Ernest Hemingway mode of American male artist. Arrogant, mean-spirited, drunk, and apparently brilliant. He's surrounded by a team of assorted Hollywood sycophants and tormentors, including his protege, played by Bogdanovich, Susan Strasburger's critic Julie Rich, and Wells' real-life companion Olya Koda, as the lead actress in his latest film. A documentary team are filming his movements as well and try to varying degrees of success to interview him. Dispensing with much context and throwing us right into the rapid-fire proceedings, The film eventually coalesces into a party at the house of Zara Valeska, played by Lily Palmer, where the cast and crew gather to watch a screening of Hannaford's latest unfinished work. We are treated to a large chunk of this movie, us the audience, which seems to be an earnestly artistic European sex drama, very much a product of its time, this being the 1970s. It all takes on a rather absurdist tone, from the Hollywood types trading barbed witticisms with each other to the semi-parodic flavour of the film within a film. Much of it is fragmentary in nature, conversing characters captured alone in solitary frames. Intriguingly, Bogdanovich narrates the opening, which is ostensibly concerned with John Huston's character and his film, but could just as easily be referring to Orson Welles and his film – it's reflexive, strange, fragmentary, and for cinephiles in particular, vital. It seems almost like a miracle that this 1970s time capsule has suddenly opened itself up for us all here in 2018. Andy, what did you make of this film?
0: Um, <clears throat> uh, the other side of the wind is is fascinating. I find it's it is. that was a really great introduction, by the way. Yeah, I thought fragmentary is probably the best word to use. To, tr- to try and get your head around it because it is this strange thing where you might be coming to an Orson Welles movie with an idea of his 50s work in your mind or maybe some of the later stuff and it's not really like that it's kind of like he's it's part satire but it's part really really naked honesty and part autobiographical in a way um, I thought the, the idea that he would want He to
1: hated that it, people called it yeah, autobiographical. I know, yeah, I Sorry, but I'm just going to interject because I no, no. watched a little bit of that doco, <laughs> right? And he's like, people would say, he's making an autobiographical picture and he's like, no, I hate that. Yeah. It's not. Anyway, sorry.
0: Um, Continue. <laughs> well, we should point out that that documentary is They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Yeah, on ne- um, which Netflix. Is, which original. is also on Netflix alongside mm-hmm. this film, Yes. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, he didn't like that, but it's it's impossible not to draw these conclusions. The fact he would choose to satirise Antonioni, I find is kind of weirdly bitter and mean and, point- <laughs> and petty, but at the same time, it's a really great Anto- Antonioni ripoff. I love that film within a film, which is called The Other Side of the Wind. Um, yep. I don't understand it, but it had some beautiful shots in it.
1: I don't understand a lot of this film, and I kind of have this really strange memory of it. When I only watched it four nights ago or something, so not that long ago, but I kind of... Can only remember bits of it, which is, I mean, it doesn't matter because the plot is as straightforward as you can get and also is kind of crazy and beyond understanding that you can get. And so in that sense, it kind of is just this weird, like, party where everyone's on drugs and you only have a very, you know, scant kind of recollection of it. Yeah. But, yeah, it does, it kind of plonks you in, Anders, you're right, and you like, what's going on? But still I was enthralled. And then when I realised, you know, what's going on and how the camera's kind of working, I mean there's no pattern to it, but you can just kind of think, okay, well this is, you know, this is how I meant to take this movie now. It's not a classic film, you know, and I had no idea what to expect at all. And so I, all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, what? We're in the psychedelic 70s now, which was crazy. <laughs> but then I very quickly got into it because it's Orson Welles, right? He can make a film. Yeah. Um, he's so good and he's so good at pushing everyone's buttons but still making something work. And so that's... I mean, that's all you really need, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense.
2: And it is amazing that it does work. Like, there is a logic to it. I mean, you just start watching, it yeah. sort of places you in situ. And, you know, these shots that last, you know, a few seconds at a time and constant intercutting between characters. But after a while, you sort of. You, object, you get what's going on, you sort of, there's repeated characters, I mean, there's a logic to what's going on. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, it's very improvisational and like didn't the actors improvise most of their dialogue um, yeah, or at least it's giving that impression that they did and so you can you kind of get into that rhythm of thinking, oh, yes, this is an improv- improvisation and so you adjust maybe your viewing. Um, yeah, because you should also
0: point out that almost every character is carrying a camera. Yeah. At this party as well. So there's like yes. these dozens and dozens of different viewpoints. So the editing must have been hellish. In fact, you know, if you watch the documentary, you'll see that it was hellish. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it also it feels like what listening to a podcast at 1.25 times speed because there is <laughs> so much great stuff and it'll disappear. Yep. The editing is so brisk and he really wants to move on to the next aphorism that somebody has got to say to somebody else while smoking a cigar or whatever. So it's, the fact that it unfolds in real time gives it this kind of really nice energy. As, like it does feel like you're in this party where it's kind of jumping from perspective to perspective and then everything will stop so we can watch this movie or the bit of the movie and then there's a power cut and there's more chatting and there's more chatting and then there's back to the movie. and then it, So it's this constant mo- shifting between the film and the party.
1: At one point, and I can't remember at what point in the film I had this thought, but the entire thing is at this incredible level of intensity, the entire film. And it reminded me so much, so there's that scene in The Lady from Shanghai where Orson Welles, where they're all on the beach and they're having their late night picnic and then Orson Welles tells the story about the sharks. Do you know this scene? Yes, I do. And that is like the most intense scene in that movie where the whole thing is kind of, you know, you hold your breath for the whole thing. But that scene in particular, and I thought this movie is operating for – two hours at the intensity of that one particular scene. And that's phenomenal that that occurs. And I don't know how, I mean, is it, you know, because they're entirely different, you know, entirely different beasts, right? Like one is just Orson Welles telling a story about sharks eating each other. (laughs) And the other is this crazy party where everyone's on drugs and everyone's trying to hunt down this one man who is elusive somehow. So they're very different, but they both worked the same That's way. It's really
0: good, yeah, it's a good, really great connection. I had made that connection. Yeah, and yeah.
1: so there's something there, even though also cinematically they're, they're different, you know, Orson Welles is not doing the same thing, that there's still that, you know, there's that something there that he can do. And whether it's, you know, the particular focus on an, an actor's face maybe, or whether he gets all of... I mean, because he and John Huston were very good friends, right? Whether... He got everyone to speak at a particular rhythm that has some impact. I mean, I don't know what it was, but but there's something there.
0: Yeah, I find it really interesting that he chose to put so many directors in this film as well, like Mm. people who aren't actors. Right. Um, um, also, th- I've got to mention that this scene In which Dan Tobin comes in as Dr. Burrows mm. Oh, that was a bizarre that scene That was an amazing scene I was like, who's Dan Tobin? This guy is fantastic And he's like a bit player I think a lot of these actors who have smaller parts Were bit players in the 30s and 40s and 50s so There's a lot of quite old men Who died not long after the shooting mm. finished um, and, this, and in this particular scene We kind of get to see this homophobia Of uh, of the character John Houston's playing um, Jake Hannaford And that becomes this kind of – it happens at this really interesting point in the film where he's been drinking a lot and things are starting to unravel and shortly after this scene we have he pulls out – guns get pulled out and people start shooting, not each other, but, like, you know, shooting outside Mm. in this kind of dangerous way. Um, And then the whole film kind of takes on another tone after this really awkward (laughs) interaction between – Well,
2: apparently that scene is semi-inspired by an interaction Wells had with with Ernest Hemingway, I was reading, Um, where he – he he was doing some uh, script edits or something or uh, to something that um, Hemingway was also working on. And Hemingway got really pissed off and called him this Hollywood, like, F- I'll drop the F. He's like, oh, you Hollywood faggots with your, like, um, with your, like, high pretensions and all that stuff. Like, just went for him in right. a way that was oh, wow. weirdly like that it's this violent there's all these sort of like random little yeah. ruptures of violence well this, this is
0: part of the thing that I find so fascinating is that it's, so, it's such a sad film because it is the death of Hollywood as we know it or as they knew it at the time these yes. older men you know, this is also knows he's on well on the way out,
2: and the death of this man because doesn't he? I mean, he doesn't die in the film, but doesn't the narrations at the start at the beginning? Say? Yeah,
0: so the whole this death is hanging over this film all the yes. way through, but also you're watching these frail men drinking themselves and smoking themselves into oblivion, yeah, yeah. as the Hollywood they knew was decades in the in the rearview. And view.
1: they, yeah, they talk about it, you know, being dead, they say it's different, they don't, they don't want to be there, but they're trying to kind of regain some control.
0: Yeah, and so I think what Orson is saying, look, look how ludicrous this is. What passes for a film these days is Antonio and he's shooting a desert and somebody with no clothes and walking around. <laughs> like he just, he seems to think it's just stupid, I suppose. But <laughs> you know, it's great. <laughs> that scene in the um in the car, there's like a sex scene. We're having sex. Oh my yes, god! Yes, that yes, is
1: phenomenal. The rainbow on her face. You know, oh. I was thinking of Romy Schneider in Inferno. Right. Um, and I just thought. I don't – I mean, who knows if there's some connection there, but it was just so incredible, this this play with colour – with this woman's face was, was insane. It feels geor- you know? like
0: beautiful. B- groundbreaking for 2018, that scene. I think it's the best thing I'll say all year, that particular scene. It's just so crazy. Yeah,
1: it was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, why didn't he do more of that?
0: Mm. <laughs> but also I think the fact that he'd been living in Europe for, t- what, 20 years by this stage mm. is that he'd been so drowned in this cin- Euro cinema <laughs> thing Is that when he turns up to Hollywood, he starts making an Antonioni <laughs> film. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they shot it in Zabriskie Point, house, yeah. the house from Zabriskie yeah, Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, did they? Oh, That's right. where the whole thing okay. takes place, I think, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'm sure the next time I watch it, there'll be more that I didn't notice because there's so much happening. There's so much conversation. Oh, so much, yes. That Pauline stand standing. Oh, I felt
1: half out of it when I watched it, so I'm sure
0: yeah. I'll get... Like, mm. She was great. Someone like Lee friends.
2: Strasberg's daughter. Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, Susan Strasberg.
2: Susan yeah. Strasberg, yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. Thank you, yes, she yeah, was great. she was a great character who, again, interestingly, yeah, uh, Jack Houston's character sort of despised. So she was at the receiving end of a lot of pointed Mm. commentary
1: i I also i love lily palmer and i thought she was fantastic in this just so perfect yes Yes. like hot sexy sultry i loved seeing her in that lipstick there's a lot going out such a fascinating you know i've been i think we've all been waiting for this film for so long and i had no idea what it was i was just like yep awesome wells film i'm there but um i'm so impressed with what has come out yeah, yeah. With what I've, you know, what I've now it's got. It's
2: fascinating. You know. And the
0: more you like cinema, the more you'll get out of it. Or twentieth century Hollywood cinema, I suppose, because there's. Yeah. You can. I mean, i spent so long on the Wikipedia and IMDb pages of these various dudes, going, "Oh my god, who is that guy?" Oh really? Oh wow, he was in silent films. Like, there's all this. <laughs> there's just so much history loaded into this film.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's you know, it's commenting on it's it's still connected to the to Orson Welles you know pushing through the classic kind of accepted rhythm and editing and everything it's connected to that, but it's also connected to European art house cinema and it's also connected to, you know, 70s, new Hollywood, um, you know, all this kind of thing. So it's got, you know, all this stuff going on. And I think, and you know, that's why it's so alive. As and a film.
2: also connected to the present. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, yes. yeah. It's which such a perfect really time for it to come out. Um, and re- interesting that Bogdanovich's commentary at the start Explicitly references, I think, because he talks yeah, about yeah. how this was a time before, before smartphones. Yeah, yeah. So you've don't, got that I don't, in the film. I don't as think Orson well. wrote, <laughs> wrote that in his yeah. original script. Yeah.
0: It is the perfect time when everyone has a camera to make to, for a film like this to come out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because everyone in the film yeah. has a camera. Oh God.
0: Yeah. And it's, seeing this version of celebrity from that back then where somebody was like famous for just the work they did and they were an enigma. They weren't, we didn't know their height and weight by looking on IMDb, etc Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
2: Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating. Recommended film yeah. for sure. Definitely.
1: Yes, very much so. Ah, why do you think you have to be How as rude you, as he is? Rude
2: as you are in print, anyway.
1: I liked your last. Yeah, movie. sure. No, I know that it was it was repetitive, but. Uh, uh,
2: so but for what it
1: was, it worked. Yeah, well, she wasn't that kind to me in her review. Not that she did me too much harm. I mean, how much harm can you do to the third-biggest grocer in movie history to make that much? i <laughs> Yes, uh,
0: did you know that when his own production company goes public, that your friend there Sam, to walk away with
2: $40 million? Yeah, and she's enough. gonna say oh. that I'm just gonna keep on writing that I, I, that I stole everything from you, Skipper. I'm never gonna walk away from that. But it's all right to borrow from each other. What we must never do is borrow from ourselves. <laughs>
0: And that brings us to the end of episode fifty-five. Thank you very much for listening. You can get extra thanks from us by throwing some stars our way on iTunes, and that would be great. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky.
1: I'm at Eloise Low Ross. Sorry, um, I was just drinking a Campari, <laughs> and was a little late.
2: Never apologize for drinking Campari, Eloise. <laughs> I am at Anders Furs. Um, and we're now on Instagram. Oh, yeah, on Insta. At cult- Cultural Capital Podcast. Thank you, Anders. <laughs> at Cultural Capital Podcast.
1: Come like our content. Yeah,
2: we're going to start producing <laughs> Hashtag great content for you. Hashtag content. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag film content.
0: Oh, shit. Oh, God. Like Speaking of content. <laughs> so, um, I don't know what happened. The official drink for this summer is the Montenegro. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it is, yes. The Montenegro Um You're welcome. <laughs>